Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, let's turn our attention to this text here that Eric read to us, Exodus 33. Um, When I was in St. Louis, went to Covenant Seminary. Um, There's another seminary there in town called Concordia Seminary. It's a Lutheran seminary. I went to a Presbyterian seminary, of course. But there's uh, a Lutheran seminary called Concordia there. And uh, Concordia has um, on display the Bible of Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, that's a picture of, of Bach on the screen there. Uh, Bach's Bible is there in St. Louis, uh, under glass. And uh, you can go and, and look at this thing, and it's really interesting because you can look and you can see Bach's handwriting. You can see the, it's hard to read what he wrote because it's kind of small and you're at some distance, but you can tell that uh, Bach was a man of God's Word. Uh, he read it, he studied it, and, and he wrote in his Bible. Um, so it's really interesting to see. Now, something that I would also like to see, but I haven't seen, I don't know if these are available at Concordia, but um, I understand that Bach, every time he wrote a piece of music, at the very bottom of the piece of music, he would write three letters, S, D, and G. And those letters stood for Sola Deo Gloria, which in Latin means to God alone be the glory. After every piece of music that he wrote, he made a notation so that it was clear that he was writing this music for the glory of God. And he has been quoted as saying this, all music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Isn't that wonderful that Bach was just so consumed with the glory of God uh, in this way? Now, this term glory is one that is used in popular culture to some degree. We say no guts, no glory. We say the American flag. We call it old glory. We talk about going out in a blaze of glory. But mostly the term glory is used in religious or spiritual um, uh, religious or spiritual way. For instance, our first catechism question. We say, what is the chief end of man? Well, it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we exist. That's why you're created. That's why you're alive, to glorify God. One of the most popular hymns that we sing in the church is, To God Be the Glory. I think probably most, if not all of you, are familiar with that song, that hymn. Uh, Glory is a theme that is dominant, that's prevailing, it's recurring, it's incessant, it's all through the scriptures. Over and over again, you see this picture of the glory of God appearing on the pages of the Bible. And so that's what we're talking about this morning, the glory of God. We're going through a sermon series now on God's attributes. So we've called this sermon series, Meet God. We're seeking to meet God on the pages of scripture. We've been looking at various attributes of God, His love, His justice, His holiness, His truthfulness, and today we're talking about His glory. And incidentally, we have two more sermons to go in this series, and then uh, Josh Holloway will be preaching, Pastor Brian will be preaching, and then in June I'm going to start a new series on 1 Peter. I'm going to go back to a book study, we're just going to work our way over the course of several weeks through that New Testament book, 1 Peter. But today... God is glorious. Now, 
Why is it important that we think about the glory of God? I want to say this, because if, if you are right now in a place where you're feeling very spiritually dry, if you're feeling like you have no interest in spiritual things whatsoever, you're, just, you're bored with the gospel, you're bored with the Bible, you're feeling distance between you and God, that could be for a number of reasons, but one reason could be because you've lost sight of the glory of God. That's what generally leads to spiritual boredom and spiritual indifference. We just don't see God glorious anymore. He just doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. To the degree that you behold the fullness of God's glory, that is the, the degree to which you will be passionate and excited about your faith. So this is an important thing for us to consider. What is meant by the glory of God? So let's think of this in three ways. First of all, there's the pursuit of glory. The pursuit of glory. Let me get you caught up, give you some context here about this passage in Exodus 33, some background. Um, the book of Exodus is about the Exodus. <laughs> See, the Bible's very simple. It's very easy. The book of Exodus is about the exodus of God's people, Israel, from the nation of Egypt. Um, Israel was enslaved in that place for many years. God heard their cries. He decided to deliver them, and the way he did that was by choosing a leader named Moses. came to Moses and said, Moses, you're going to be my man, and you're going to lead these people out of Egypt to the promised land. So the goal for freeing his people was so that God could place them in a place of prosperity, the land of Canaan. And so through a number of miraculous um, episodes, God delivers his people. You know about the escape through the Red Sea. The Israelites are fleeing the Egyptians. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites cross over on dry land. The Egyptians come after them, and the water caves back in and destroys the enemy of God's people. And Israel is freed, and they begin this long journey toward the promised land. And as Moses leads God's people, there is a place, I think it's in chapter 19, where Moses goes up on this mountain. It's called Mount Sinai. And Moses and God have this personal dialogue about how Moses is going to lead this people. And one of the things that happens there is that God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. That's Exodus chapter 20. We're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. That's the context in which that happens. God gives these commandments so that his people will know how to live as they travel into the promised land. And then God gives instructions to Moses and says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. You're going to build a tabernacle where my people can worship me and I can dwell with them. A tabernacle is basically like a portable church building. They just put you know, sticks and poles and put tents over it, and they come in there and worship, and when it was time to move on, they tear the thing down, take it with them, and assemble it at the next place. And so God on Mount Sinai gives Moses these instructions for the tabernacle. Now, while all this is going on, the Israelites, God's people, are down at the foot of the mountain, and they're starting to wonder, where's Moses? They've been down there for quite a while. Moses is up on the mountain. They're starting to wonder if Moses is ever going to come back again. And so they have a great idea. They will build a golden calf. And so they get all these materials together, and they build this calf, and they set it up, and they bow down, 
and they worship it. Instead of worshiping the God who delivered them from Egypt, they worship this golden calf. Well, God knows what's happening, and he becomes enraged. He's angry about his people and their worship. And so he talks to Moses, and he says, this people of yours, this stiff-necked people, they're down there worshiping that calf. Well, Moses intercedes on behalf of his people, and he pleads with God, and he says, oh, God, please don't destroy or consume this people for their sin. And God agrees, and he relents, and he shows mercy. And he refuses or chooses not to consume the people of God. And that brings us up to chapter 33. I just covered 32 chapters of the book of Exodus in in just a couple of minutes. And now we're at chapter 33. Moses is still up there on the top of Mount Sinai. And he's still talking with, uh, with God. And God has said to Moses, you know, I'm not going to consume the people but I want you to know that I'm not going with you into the promised land either. And so Moses is trying to deal with this. And we've got to imagine the tight spot Moses is in here. I mean, first of all, let's remember, Moses didn't want this job to begin with. Right? It was back in Exodus chapter 3 that God comes to Moses and says, you're going to lead my people out. And Moses says, please, not me. I can't speak. I can't do this. Choose somebody else. But God prevails, Moses decides to do it, and now here's Moses with this stiff-necked, rebellious people on the one hand and an angry God on another, and this God has said, you're going to lead these people into the promised land, and now God's saying, I'm not going to go with you. And you can just imagine Moses just, you know, stressed out. (laughs) And so Moses says in verses 15 and 16, for instance, he says, you know, God, how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we're distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? saying, how are people going to know we're your people if you don't go with us? There's nothing to make us distinct. There's nothing to set us apart. You, you've got to go. And yet Moses, and yet God is, is not making the promise to go. So that leads us up to verse 18. And here we have this amazing request made by Moses. It is one of the most audacious, daring, nervy, we might say, requests in all of the Bible. Verse 18. I mean, if somebody were to say to you, I'm going to be president of the United States, or I'm going to be a multi-billionaire one day, or I'm going to be the most famous and successful quarterback in the history of the NFL. You would say, man, good luck, you know. Those are some pretty, those are some pretty ambitious goals there. You know, deep down you're just thinking, man, that, that's, that's a lot to ask. Those promises, those requests are nothing compared to what Moses asked for in verse 18 of Exodus 33. What does Moses say? He comes before God and he says, God, please show me your glory. That's what I need right now. I'm in this tight spot. I don't know what's going to happen. You've called me to do this work and I don't think I do it very well and I don't know how I'm going to get the stiff-necked rebellious people. You're saying you're not going to go. I don't know what's happening And he just says, oh, God, here's what I need, a picture of your glory. That's what I want. 
please, Lord, in the midst of this troubled time, show yourself to me. Let me taste your glory. Let me experience it. Let me perceive it. Let me grasp it in some way. Show me your glory. Have you ever made that request of God? You ever asked God to show you his glory? In one respect, what this is is really a picture of every human being. Because every one of us, friends, every one of us is in pursuit of glory in this life. You're all glory chasers. (laughs) And I am too. We're all looking for a taste of glory. I mean, that's what really gets us up out of bed in the morning. The hope that something glorious might happen, that I might see something or perceive something glorious. Here's how Paul Tripp says it. Admit it, you're a glory junkie. That's why you like the 360 degree between the legs slam dunk. Something glorious about that. And that amazing hand beaded formal gown. Now I gotta admit I don't quite see the glory in that. (laughs) Or the seven layer triple chocolate mousse cake. I definitely see the glory in that. You're a glory junkie. You were hardwired by your creator for a glory orientation. This is the way you and I have been made in the image of God. Adam and Eve created in in the garden to have fellowship with God, to enjoy the glory of God on a regular basis, uninterrupted. Well, because of our sin, that's been interrupted now. And since the fall of Adam and Eve, all of us have been on this constant pursuit of glory in one form or another. It might be in uh, um, in, in the pursuit of wealth, having a lot of money. It might be in the pursuit of uh, a very fancy career. It might be in the pursuit of fame. It might be in the pursuit of some kind of sexuality or sexual pursuit. It might be in the pursuit of an enhanced reputation of some sort. But in whatever case it is, all of us are hardwired to pursue glory. And that's not... <laughs> necessarily a bad thing because that's the way we're made we're made for glory you are made for glory the problem is that we seek glory so often in the wrong places that's where we go wrong we don't seek glory where it can be found see Moses is saying here's where I know I can find the glory that I need in God and so he asks to receive it from him. But our tendency as sinful human beings is to find it in all sorts of different places. I read this book recently called Vinyl Junkies, and it's about these uh, people who uh, travel the country looking for rare LP records. Uh, The subtitle of the book is Adventures in Record Collecting. And the book tells the story of this one guy who goes into a club and he hears this song and he's just enraptured with this song. He loves it so much and he doesn't get the title of the song. And so he goes on this pursuit of this record. And so for like seven years, he travels around the country going from record store to record store looking for this record. And finally he finds it after seven years. And he takes it home and he said he plays it on the turntable about 10 times and then he put it in his record collection and he never listened to it again. Seven years of pursuing this, this record that he thought 
he was going to find so much glory in it. And it finds out that there's just not nearly as much glory in that thing as he thought. Friends, what are you chasing in this life? What are you pursuing? In what are you hoping and expecting to find glory? What is it? What is it that's driving you? What is it that's getting you out of bed? Where is it that you're thinking that your thirst for glory is going to be satisfied? What is that thing? Who is that person? And when you find it, is it going to be as glorious as you think? I mean, there's really two issues here. One, some of us don't pursue glory at all. We're apathetic and indifferent about everything. That's a problem, too. I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue glory. As Paul Tripp told us, we're hardwired with a glory orientation. We're made to pursue glory. To not be passionate about life is to be indifferent and apathetic. That's a bad thing. But it's just as much of a problem to pursue the wrong thing. And this, basically, is the problem of idolatry, just seeking glory in places where it cannot be found. Here's what um, um, John 12 tells us, this story of these Jewish authorities. It says they believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They wanted glory from reputation. They wanted glory from the praise that they thought they'd receive from people. And they wanted that more than God's glory. This is the way Clement of Alexandria says, it will not be pleasing to God himself if we value least those things which are worth the most. Do you value the glory of God the most? It seems that's what Moses was doing here in this text. And that's why he asked for it. So there's the pursuit of glory. But then secondly, we also have the revealing of glory. Glory revealed. And that's what happens uh, in this passage. Let, let me pause for a moment just to define what glory is. I haven't done that yet. What is glory? What is God's glory? Uh, it's harder to define than you might expect. The Hebrew word for glory, the one that's used in this passage, uh, actually means literally heaviness or weight. So that's what's at the root of this word glory, heaviness, weight. Glory also refers to the, the beauty of God, the, the radiant splendor of God. Uh, we might define it like this. Glory is the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. And it is shown forth to elicit in the creature, in you and in me, a sense of delight and awe and praise and worship. When you behold glory, that's the only appropriate response. Awe, praise, and worship. That's what happens when glory is revealed. And in this passage, in chapter 33, God reveals His glory to Moses. And we see this in chapter 20, excuse me, in verses 20 to 23. Moses has made this request. God, show me your glory. God says, okay, I'll show it to you on one condition. Verse 20, 
says, I'm going to show you my glory, but Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Get here a picture of how, how overwhelmingly intense the glory of God must be. So intense that if we were to behold it in its fullness, we would drop down dead immediately. We'd be consumed. The light and the brightness of the glory of God is too much for sinful human beings to handle. I had an eye appointment this past week, and uh, you know how they dilate your pupils so they can kind of look in your eye, and then they come and they shine that light right in your eye, and you just feel that, that it's like you're standing in front of a freight train, just light just it coming into your eyeball, and it feels like it's just filling your whole head. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you had that light in your eyeball? And it's just like everything I can do just to keep from looking. But, you know, the doctors say, no, keep looking at my ear, keep looking, keep looking. And you just want to turn away. The, the brightness is just too much. I mean, that must be just a tiny fraction, a tiny glimpse of what the brightness and the lightness of the glory of God is like and what Moses here is about to experience. So because it's so overwhelming, God says, here's what I'm going to do, Moses. Verse 21, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock. And that's basically a cave. I'm going to tuck you away in this cave and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then, after I pass by, I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. In other words, you'll get to see some of my glory, but only, only a tiny bit of it, only a little remnant of it from my back because that's all you can handle. And that's how God reveals his glory to Moses. Now, as an aside, I, I should mention here that God doesn't actually have a face or a back or a hand. Um, you know, when God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, as a man, of course, Jesus had a face, a back, and a hand, but God the Father is spirit. He's invisible. He, he doesn't have those facial, uh, physical characteristics. What we, uh, the, the term we use to describe this is an anthropomorphism. That's what this is. An anthropomorphism is simply a way of ascribing human characteristics to God so that we can understand something of the way he is. God is infinite. We are finite. God has to condescend. He has to kind of break it down for us. And so the Bible um, articulates some of God's attributes in a human way so that we can understand it. That's what's happening uh, in this situation. But you'll see here that Moses is going to have his request honored. He's going to get to see the glory of God. Now there's something interesting here. It's like Glory is clearly, it seems from this passage, something that can be seen. You know, we don't really talk about seeing the holiness of God so much. But apparently we can see the glory of God. Moses could see the glory of God. And you and I can see the glory of God. Do you know how? Do you know how you can see, actually see the glory? I don't mean just believe in it, I mean see it. Well, there's a few ways the Bible tells us that you can see the glory of God. One, in creation. 
you can see the glory of God in creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In the sky, in the moon, in the sun, in the lakes, in the trees, the glory of God is proclaimed to all creatures of the earth. Now you might say, well, that doesn't seem that glorious to me. Well, that's your problem, not God's problem. God says, this is where my glory is revealed. If you can't recognize it, that, that's part of what it is to be a fallen creature. It's not just the sins that we commit, it's our inability to recognize what is really glorious. And the created order is glorious. God says it's glorious. And people, when they're beginning to think straight, see it as glorious. Here's uh, Bill Gates said this the other day, the mystery and the beauty of the world is overwhelmingly amazing and there's no scientific explanation of how it came about. He went on to say he thinks it's perfectly reasonable to believe in God. I don't think the man's a Christian, but what he's saying here is I'm beholding the glory of God in creation and I've got to think that something's behind it besides just a bunch of random mutations that we would learn from, from science. The glory of God is displayed, proclaimed in the created order. The glory of God is also seen in human beings. Men, women, and children created in the image of God display something of the glory of God. I mean, think of it that way. When people look at you, they're seeing something of the glory of God. Look what Psalm 8 says. God has made him, that is mankind, men, men, women, and children, God's made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. See, when we talk about glorifying God, we don't mean that we're adding glory to him. It's not like he's deficient and he needs us to kind of give him a glory fill to kind of, you know, top him off and give him more glory. When we say we're going to glorify God, what we mean is that we're going to enhance his reputation, that we're going to represent him in this world in such a way that his glory is shown through us in the way you relate to your spouse, in the way you talk to your children, in the way you handle your money, in the way you respond to conflict, in the way you conduct your sexual life. These are all ways that God's glory is shown. And particularly you who are Christians, you know, if the whole world are glory junkies by virtue of being made in the image of God, then those who are not Christians are looking to you and hoping that there's something in your life that will display the glory of God. It doesn't necessarily have to be a gospel presentation. It can be just the way you live. Is there glory in the way you live? Is God's glory being shown, communicated through you? This is one of the ways it's seen. But the other way that God's glory is seen, revealed, is in Jesus. Now, of course, we don't see Jesus right now. He's not walking the earth at this moment, but we behold his glory in the scriptures as he's described for us there in at least two ways. Number one, in his incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. There's something just glorious about the person of Jesus, his whole life, everything he said and did was glorious. But the most profound place where glory is found 
is at the cross, the atonement. John chapter 12, Jesus is looking ahead. He's been teaching, he's been performing miracles, and now he's at the point where he's about to go lay down his life, and he says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Isn't that astounding that where we think of glory as always this kind of victorious thing and getting people's attention and climbing the ladder, and yet in Christianity there's this odd paradox where glory is found in going downward. Glory is found in the death of the Son of God. And of course, most fully, in His resurrection. Leon Morris says this, though to men it might seem the very depth of degradation, yet in his humiliation the Son of God made life available to men. The hour of his suffering is thus paradoxically the hour of his greatest glory. That's where you see the glory of God, the Son of God hanging on a cross, bearing your sins in your mind. That is a glorious God. So friends, if you're pursuing glory and you want glory to be revealed to you, let me ask you, have you found it in the gospel? You can see remnants of the glory of God in creation, but the most profound place where you must find it, according to the word of God, is in the gospel, in the crucifixion of Jesus, in his resurrection from the dead. That's where God's glory is found. Have you found it there? Is the life, death, and resurrection a glorious thing to you? That's the mark of a Christian. The mark of a Christian is he looks, she looks at the atoning death of Jesus for their sins and finds glory. Their hearts are stirred. They're overcome with joy because of what God was willing to do for you and for me at the cross. And when you get that, and when you believe that, there's a profound impact that results. So this is the last thing, the impact of glory. The impact that glory has on our lives. Moses beheld the glory of God and he was profoundly impacted. And he was impacted in a way that others who were watching him could perceive. So if you go ahead to chapter 34 and go to verse 35, Chapter 34, verse 35. Moses finally comes down off the mountain. (laughs) He's been up there all this time, and finally he comes down. And when he comes down, according to verse 35, it says, The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. The NIV says that Moses' face was radiant. Why? Because he'd beheld the glory of God. He was changed. He was transformed in a way that the people of Israel could notice clearly and immediately. That's a man who's been changed. I can see his face shining brightly. You know, let me just give you some examples of how this has happened in other people's lives. A biblical example, Stephen. You remember Stephen from Acts chapter 6? He's the first Christian martyr. When Stephen was being harassed and interrogated by the Jewish officials, it says at the end of chapter 6 that his face was like the face of an angel. Undergoing all that pressure and that persecution, 
people could see it. There was something different about him. And then he goes in, in chapter 7, he gives this big, long sermon goes throughout all Old Testament history, talks about Jesus as the promised Messiah, his death and resurrection, and it just enrages the Jewish officials, and they come after him with rocks, and they're about ready to stone him to death, and Stephen looks up into the heavens, and it says he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And then the rocks came upon him, pummeled him, killed him, and even in the midst of that, he could say, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He beheld the glory of God, and it sustained his witness through a horrible death, a horrible death. It's another example. This is um, <clears throat> from a, a singer-songwriter named Iris Dement. I think I've talked about her before. Um, these are the liner notes for her album, My Life. Uh, she wrote this entire album for her father. And um, Iris Dement, uh, not a believer, I don't believe, has never professed to be. But here's what she wrote about her dad. In the months before dad's death, when he was not feeling well, he would thrust his arm in the air and with his hand open, his eyes looking upward and in a tone similar to the one you'd use to tell somebody to get off your property, he'd say, go unto glory. Though my own ways of thinking do not always coincide with those of the church I grew up in or the religion adhered to by my father, I know that he was an honest man, and in spite of any mistakes he may have made, his heart was pure. So I have no doubt whatsoever, but that glory is just exactly where he is. Iris DeMent watched her father all those years, a professed Christian, and she saw in him a man who had beheld the glory of God. She was impacted by that because her father was impacted by that. Here's another example. Danny Addington. Danny's a member of this church. Uh, Danny's recently been diagnosed with brain cancer. And Danny's not here today, and I'm glad that he's not because the last thing Danny Addington would want would be any attention related to the story I'm about to tell. <laughs> He'd be squirming in his seat if he were in here right now. I did talk to Carol and ask for permission to share this story. But um, Danny's been diagnosed with brain cancer. He's been in the hospital with pneumonia. And when I go and I talk to Danny, do you know what I see on his face? I see radiance. I see joy. And I see peace. And the reason why is because Danny became a Christian just this last fall at 70-some years old. Was baptized here in this church. And Carol, his wife, said uh, just the other day, she said that this is what Danny had said to her. She said that Danny says that he's more happy about being a Christian than he is unhappy about having cancer. Why is that? It's because God has shown into Danny's heart and given him a light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why he can do that. 
Stephen, before his persecution, he saw the glory of God. Iris Dement's father saw the glory of God on his deathbed. Danny Addington has beheld the glory of God. And Moses saw and beheld the glory of God. And you can too. Through Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can know and experience the fullness of his glory. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his Son. What a glorious God we have. Let's pray. Our Father, we probably don't ask for this nearly enough. And so, on behalf of this congregation and on behalf of myself, I say, God, please show us your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.